you know, and we're trying to, it's just been fun. So, all right. Well, you all look like you're in a fog to me, but that's good. I'm glad you're here, and I can see the word, and that's all that matters because I can teach it. Um, just a real quick note. Tonight I met with the, uh, the buyer. We've been in escrow on this property for, since 2013, and Barry and I went and met the buyer for dinner because the date uh, that the escrow is to be completed is coming to a close, and there's some issues, and so just need your prayer. Um, if the Lord wants us to get rid of this property and this, this onerous debt, which is what we want. We want to be debt-free, and we have this opportunity, but it's just this final thing. We just can't get over this final thing, and, and it's just so frustrating, but our God knows, and so I'm going to ask that you pray with me. I'm going to try to get the board together over the next couple of days uh, and, and discuss it with them and, and make some final decisions because we're really at a, a place where um, it's either going to make it or break it, you know, and, and the Lord knows. So let's go to him in prayer, and then we'll pray for our Bible study and get into the Word tonight. Father, I'm so grateful that we can run to you. You are our strength. And this is not the only issue in our church. But we ask, God, that you would move with your hand of direction and, and uh, move that mountain out of our way, that mountain of debt, and uh, bring us to a place, Lord, of freedom financially. But we also pray, Lord, for those hurting in our fellowship, Sarah, who fell and broke her hip and is in recuperation, 90 years old. For Marlene Lopez, who has got a diagnosis, Lord, of leukemia, maybe not the serious kind, maybe the serious kind now, they're not sure after today's diagnosis. For Joe's heart condition, Ernie's heart's uh, 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 bypass and healing for Phil's daughter's heart, the brand new heart that's beating in her chest right now for the last three or four weeks. Lord, there's a little Lincoln that needs your touch. And these four babies that are going to be born here soon, that we ask God that you would give these mothers just your grace and strength physically. There's so many other things, Lord, going on in our fellowship. And as we sang in this song, Lord, we will not be moved. We run to you, Lord. You're our tower. You're our strength. You answer our prayers, and you know what we need. But we come to you and ask, and we're grateful that you're a great, sympathetic, and high priest. And so we, we lay these things before you, Lord. We ask, God, for your will to be done, for your glory to be shown, for your power to be revealed. And we believe in you. And tonight, Lord, as we turn our attention from those real and, and important prayer requests to your word, we ask, God, that this study would help us to understand your purpose and plan for the, not only the nation of Israel, but the fact that we can come to you and run to you and that you are our refuge and our strength. And so, Lord, open up to us tonight 
your word. Show your power, Lord, in, in our requests and in your word tonight. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. We're in chapter 35 of Numbers. We're coming to the end, as you can well see, of our Bible study here. Uh, last time in chapter 34, we read all about the boundaries, the, the borders of this nation, Israel. I showed you a map, you know, to kind of give you an idea of what we're looking at. The children of Israel are right now camped on the east side of the Jordan River in eyesight of Jericho. And God is going over with Moses what he wants his nation, his people to be, and what he wants them to do. And last week, at the end of the chapter, God chose leaders from each of the tribes, and they would be responsible to distribute portions of the land for their tribe to the different families based on the size of the family. And so the land is now being, going to be distributed the key message last week was, was here's the land, here's the organization, now it's up to you as an individual tribe to occupy the land, to take the land. Just as you and I as Christians are given salvation as a gift of the grace of God, but it's our responsibility to live it out. We don't earn our salvation, we can't. But we're given it freely and it's our responsibility to possess that salvation and to live it out in a daily basis. The children of Israel were given land. They were expected to possess that land. Now tonight, in chapter 35, we're going to look at two unique types of cities. Cities that are designated for a purpose within the land of Israel. Cities that had an importance in terms of the spiritual life of the people. So as the people are going to be distributed all across the land of Israel, when they finally possess the land and dispossess the inhabitants, the Canaanites, these cities are going to be strategically placed so that the people have a place to go and so the priests can get to the people within like a day's journey. So everyone can be encouraged, everyone can have a priest that cares for them and will minister to them in the name of the Lord. And then also there's these cities of refuge, these safe spaces for people that accidentally, through no fault of their own, kill someone. What happens to them and what's fair and what's just? And so we have the cities of refuge that we're going to look at, lots of neat application in our our Bible study tonight. We begin here in verse 1 with cities for the Levites. So we're going to see cities for the Levites and then these cities of, of uh, refuge. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, Command the children of Israel that they give the Levites cities to dwell in from the inheritance of their possessions. And you shall also give the Levites common land around the cities. They shall have the cities to dwell in, and their common land shall be for their cattle, for their herds, and for all their animals. The common land of the cities which you will give the Levites shall extend from the wall of the city outward 1,000 cubits all around. 
And verse five, you shall measure outside the city on the east side 2,000 cubits and the south side 2,000 cubits and the west side 2,000 cubits and on the north side 2,000 cubits. The city shall be in the middle. This shall belong to them as common lands, the Levites, for their cities. So you remember that the Levites are the only of the 12 tribes that are not given land to possess in Canaan. Why? Because they're the priestly tribe, and their inheritance is who? Who's their inheritance? The Lord. It's the Lord. They don't get land. They get the Lord, and the Lord is going to guide them, and it's very important that they take possession, but they have to have someplace to live. can't just live in a tent city next to the wall. And so they're given a place in each city under the tribe, uh, tribal name. They're given these cities. There's 48, I believe, of them. And each one of these cities had the wall. They, these people would always build a wall. The wall wasn't necessarily 10 feet tall. It might be just a rock wall, but there was a boundary around the city. And so next to these cities with all of these people, remember there's two and a half, maybe three million Israelites. They're going to be divided in this land. So there's lots of people. Some of these cities are very large. And then associated with the city would be land or property that, that was going to be given by the people of the city to those that did the ministry, the, the priests that do the ministry. So they still don't own land. It comes from the people, the tribal land, that they're able to live on this. It's common land, it's called, like park land or whatever. They're given this land for them to live in because they don't have an inheritance. The Lord was their inheritance. Look at the scripture. Here it is. We talked about this uh, several chapters ago, but Numbers 18, Then the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance. Aaron is the high priest of the Levites. You'll have no inheritance in the land, nor shall you have any portion among them. Why? The Lord says, I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel. I want you to be committed to me and dedicated to me. No material things, no earthly things. Boy, how different that is from those name-it-claim-it preachers, huh? Man, if they just read their Bible. They just read their Bible. So God was their inheritance. But if you're a Levite, how do you put food on the table? Because apart from the feasts that brought people to those cities... And then they would distribute the food that was offered in the specific uh, high places, Shiloh and, and Jerusalem, where the temples were. How are the priests going to get food in these outlining places? Well, God was going to provide for them with pasture land all around this area, this city, these, this area that's described as, as uh, cubits, uh, thousands of cubits. They have to raise their animals, verse 3, in this common land. And then this, these, these, uh, this land is going to be all throughout the land of Canaan. 6, it says, verse 6, Now among the cities you will give the Levites, you shall appoint six cities of refuge to, who, to which a manslayer may flee, and to these shall add 42 cities. So there's the 48 cities, six of which are these cities of refuge, so all the cities you give the Levites shall be 48 
These you shall give with their common land. Now the size there is, is it's interesting. What is a cubit? Well, we know what a cubit is, right? It's the forefinger to your elbow. But what is that? How does that translate in? It's about a quarter mile, 1,500 cubits, about a quarter mile uh, in one direction you could estimate. The overall area is, is quite large. It's about a half mile square. And part of that was common land. So in the middle of that, the people would live. And then all around them, they'd have this, you know, acres and acres of land for their flocks and herds to feed the Levitical families. So God's providing for them. Verse 8, and the cities which you sh- will give them from the possessions of the children of Israel. So they don't own land. It's the people in the cities, the, the different tribes that give them their land to live on, but they never own it. They just live on that land. The land from the Levites comes directly from the tribe's overall land that they own as the tribe. Here's the application for this portion of the scripture here. The concept of people in the city providing for those that are doing the ministry, the work of the ministry, the priests, the spiritual work, is very similar to what we have in the church today, where we just received an offering. The money goes into a coffer. There's men in our church and women in our church that meet on Sunday that count it. We have uh, Najma London who makes a counting of that money. It goes into the bank. And then from that money comes um, sustenance for the pastor and his family. I've been, a, I've been serving this church for 33 years as a full-time Christian worker. And it's this church that has helped me to, you know, pay my mortgage. It's this church through my ministry and your mutual support that's enabled me to raise my children that are leading you in worship. It's, it's the money that comes in that pays for Pastor John's salary so that he can full-time invest his whole life in serving this fellowship, this community. And so the principle is really similar that we see not only in the Old Testament, but the New Testament and the, the church. In 1 Corinthians 9, notice this verse behind me. Paul says, Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offering of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So if you're a full-time Christian worker... There's nothing wrong with supporting that full-time Christian worker with the money, the funds that come in in the local church. And I can just say that's, I mean, I guess it's my car out here, but the payment comes from people that, you know, support this ministry. And I get my salary, then I buy this car. So if you want to see where your money's gone, you can go look at my car. I've got an older car if you want to look at that one. But here's the the beauty of that. There's a real beauty and simplicity of that. It's something that God instituted way back here with the children of Israel. He provided for the Levites, those that were doing this ministry, the priestly ministry in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, the, the servant ministry, the pastoral ministry of the church. 
So both Old and New Testament, we see that principle there. And then notice in verse 8, the cities were distributed proportionally. Notice, from the larger tribe you shall give many, from the smaller you shall give few. Each shall give some of its cities to the Levites in a a proportion to the inheritance that each received. So remember, some of the the tribes were smaller than others, so they they got smaller lots of land. So their cities are going to be smaller, and so they would give smaller portions to the Levites, but it was all proportional. It was all fair. This was God's way to distribute land and provide for the, the priests and the priestly family, the Levites. Um, again, when we think about this, we, we see that the priests were to do this ministry and they were to, to reach out and, and to uh, serve the people there in that community. Uh, no one in Israel would be that far from one of those cities, so they were always able to, to go outside of the city and minister to the people in the surrounding area. And you have 48 of these cities distributed all through the land of Israel. And so people were being ministered to by these priests that would go in and out from these cities. I love that truth. It's why we send missionaries out. It's why we exist as a church to get the gospel out, not so that we can sit and worship and greet each other, which is good. That's all good. But we exist to get the gospel out. That's why we have our missionaries, our missions board. You should know, as a member of this church, you should know those missionaries and pray for them. You support them when you give your money. The part of that support goes to them. But God expects his people to minister and go out from the church, not to do ministry in the church, but to get built up in the church, Ephesians, and then go out and do that work of the ministry. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, he says, I want, you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And by being filled with the Holy Spirit, I expect something. You're going to be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost ends of the earth. That's our calling. That's our ministry. That's what we're to do. You're to be built up and fed by your pastor so you can go out and do those things and minister. And we as a church are to send people out and do that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be leaving you know. I'll be leaving in a week on the 27th. I'm going to be going to South Sudan and Uganda to teach uh, pastors and um, chaplains in the South Sudanese army. There's about a thousand chaplains in the army, and they're going to be coming back from the field after a whole year of fighting and battle. And they're going to be coming to this compound there in, in Sudan that far-reaching ministries has constructed. And there's about 15 of us pastors that will be there. Uh, Lloyd Poley from, from uh, New Jersey, and there's guys from, uh, I'll be preaching with a guy, uh, Chris, I believe his name is, down, from down in Florida. Gary from Calvary Apple Valley is going to be there. Randy from Calvary uh, Upland is going to be there. Him and I are flying to Dubai next Friday together. And then on to Entebbe is where, and then we go to to Sudan from there. And this is part of your ministry, supporting your pastor to get out and share the gospel and build up the body of Christ in another place. So we as a church are involved in this. We're doing what God has called us to do in sharing the gospel, spreading the gospel, and that's what these Levites were to do. They had a place to live so they could eat, 
function as a family, and then go out and do the work of the ministry. So these first special cities were for the Levites and their families for food and homes. Now the second cities described here, this gets really exciting, are the six cities of refuge described here in verse 9 through verse 15. They were first mentioned back in verse 6. Notice it says, you shall appoint six cities of refuge to be or to which a manslayer may run or flee. But the beginning of verse 9, we, we get the description of the city, what it's for. The, then the Lord, verse 9, spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall appoint cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person accidentally may flee there. Now, you have to think in terms of this culture. There are people that have 400 years been slaves, 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Now they're going to go and take this land. God is their leader, but they don't have a sheriff. They don't have a police department. They don't have EMTs or emergency personnel to help or do anything. And so God is now going to uh, lay down some rules here. If a family member, your brother, gets killed in some kind of event, it was up to you as a first kin, maybe the brother, maybe the father, maybe the uncle or the cousin, it was up to you to avenge the death of your kin immediately. It was a law in Genesis chapter 9, I don't know if you remember, it was several years ago, we went through the book of Genesis, and in Genesis chapter 9, it's, the, it's kind of a, a real interesting turning point. Remember Noah and the flood. And in chapter 9, the boat finally has, has settled. It's taken months for the water to recede. And they've been in the boat for many, many months, up to a year, some believe. And now God says, okay, you're going to get off the boat and you're going to have to make your own way because you brought supplies for all these animals in your family, but you're running low. And I'm going to open the door of this boat, and something's going to happen. Do you remember what happened when the boat opened and the animals and the, saw the men and the men saw the animals? Remember what happened? There was like chaos. The parrot said, it's men, run, you know, and all the animals, wah, they run. They, they just took off. They went crazy, berserk. It's in Genesis chapter 9. First, God says, be fruitful and multiply to Noah and replenish the earth. And it's like, well, how do you do that without food? Well, you just brought your food. And you go, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's plants to eat. No, there wasn't. The whole world was destroyed. There's nothing to eat. What are they going to eat? Well, there's a whole boatload of meat. And God puts enmity between man and the animals in a way that's never happened before. And God tells them, you know, this is what you're going to eat. You're going to eat that food. The whole earth is destroyed. There's no food. But the animals who were just docilely came up to Noah and got on the boat, you know, last year, have now just gone. They look at man and they go, ah, and they run. They're gone. It's pretty interesting. Let me show you this verse, Genesis 9. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, 
and all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hand. Why why are they afraid? Because they're given into your hand. Why are they given in your hand? Because it's all food. It's all food. Must have been shocking for man and beast at that moment because they were just cuddling all for a year on the boat, right, with the animals, you know, playing with the snakes and enjoying the fur of the different animals and you know how you love to pet a cat every day. It was yours. It was your pet. And now your pet just flees for its life. Must have been funny. But more important, God at that same time laid down this irrevocable law in Genesis chapter 9, and this is the point. It's the sanctity of human life. There's a penalty now for murder, and it's right there in Genesis 9. Here it is, verse 6 behind me on the screen. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. And notice how that phrase is written. It's really important to see that. The first half of the sentence is repeated again in the second half. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. There's a, there's a strength of warning in that repetition, in the way it's written in God's command there. The Bible teaches that man is made in the image of God and you have no right to take another man's life. And that if you do, your life will be taken. By man, his blood shall be shed. So murder, when you take the innocent life away, it's much more than a hostile act against man. It's an act against God. We could talk a lot about different types of murder, which would even include suicide. But when even suicide... You're stepping outside the will of God. You're not thinking correctly. It's wrong. It's it's totally wrong in terms of what the Bible says. So murder, again, is an act against God. To attack man and kill is to attack God because it says, for in the image of God, he made man. So when you properly apply this verse here, Genesis 9, 6, it becomes an effective deterrent from just vicious murder of whoever. You don't like somebody, so you kill them. You didn't like this person, so you kill them. This is a deterrent. This is God's deterrent against that, that system of, of murder. But here's the question then, and we come to this portion in, Gen- or in Numbers chapter 35. What if death, death is accidental? What if somebody dies at your hand, actually you didn't mean to, you didn't premeditate it, it, it's, it wasn't, you didn't mean to do it, and so what if it's accidental death? That's what this portion of Numbers is all about. God's offering a place, a city of refuge for people who unintentionally killed someone else. We call it manslaughter. Notice here in verse 11, the the latter portion, that the manslayer who kills any person accidentally may flee there. Manslayer, ratzak is the word, killer, murderer, assassinator. Here's the illustration. Two men are working together. They're chopping down a tree. One man swings an axe, and as he swings the axe, the head of the axe comes off, and it strikes the the other man right in the head and kills him, bam, right away, instantly. 
And the guy's holding the axe like, I'm in trouble because now the family member's going to come and kill me. I, I accident, I, how am I going to explain this? We were out in the field together. Nobody was our witness. So he now can run to a city of refuge to save his life because Genesis 9 says that if you kill someone by man's hand, you will be killed, right? So that law is already instituted. So now if you killed somebody, even though it was accidental, there was going to be an avenger, not the kind on the Marvel comics, an avenger of blood, someone that's going to come and avenge the blood of his family member, and you could run to the city of refuge. You could flee to safety from that avenger of blood until the issue was settled. Look at verse 12. They shall be cities of refuge for you from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation in judgment, until he gets a fair trial, until he gets a fair hearing. So God is just, and he wants his people to be just. This is God's just way to take care of a law he instituted that if you disregard my creation, man, and kill someone, by man, you will die. That's, that's a deterrent to stop murder. That was God's intentional way to communicate that. But here in the cities, there's going to be accidental. What do we do with the accident? How, how do we deal with that? There's a city, and there's judgment that can take place there. God's fair. Each person is entitled to a trial. The congregation here or the elders of the community, they go to the gates and of that city of refuge and say, wait, 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 this guy's chasing me right now with an axe. He's going to cut my head off. But let me tell you, I, I, I claim safety in the city of refuge. It was an accident. That's, that's what's happening here. Verse 13, and of the cities which you gave, you shall have six cities of refuge. Verse 14, you shall appoint three cities on this side of the Jordan, that would be the east side, because remember, they're still on the east side of the Jordan. And then three cities you shall appoint in the land of Canaan, which will be cities of refuge. So there's three east of the Jordan, Reuben, Gad, and half tribe of Manasseh. Remember, those are the ones we're not going to go in. We're not going in with you. We like this desert land out here for our sheep and our herds. The place of Moab, we just wiped out some of the Moabites, so we're happy out here. And Moses said, that's not fair. You've got to fight with us. Okay, we'll fight with you, but we're going to come back out here. They settled for less than what God wanted for them, and God's going to allow it. So those tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they have these three cities outside on the east of the Jordan, and then there's the other three cities that are on the west side of the Jordan between the Mediterranean Sea and the River Jordan for the nine and a half tribes. According to Joshua 20, again, if a man accidentally killed someone, he could flee to one of these cities to be heard, to, to share his case, and then the congregation would judge if it was an accident or if it was intentional. If it was intentional, then the avenger that came into the city was the one that would kill him, not the congregation, not the local authority. It would be the avenger. He would avenge the blood of his relative. But if it was an accident, he would be allowed to live in the city. And we'll see later how long. That's, that's an interesting question, how long he could 
could live there, how long the, the sentence uh, was in effect. But here's some application again. The, the city of refuge represents something very important for you and I as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ. Because these cities of refuge are really types of Christ. You and I run to the city of refuge. We run to Jesus Christ as sinners. For what? Because we have a death sentence on us. And it's going to Christ. It's going to God. And he removes our death sentence and gives, it gives us life. In the same way, these cities gave life to these people that accidentally killed someone. We run to the Lord for forgiveness. We run to the Lord to be our refuge. He's our refuge from the penalty of death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ. We have eternal life in Christ. We, we run from death to the city of refuge to our Lord. It's a beautiful, beautiful truth. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is our city of refuge. He actually says that in Hebrews 6. Notice here behind me that we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. That's a reference to laying hold of Christ, running to Jesus, holding on to him because we have hope in him, forgiveness of our sins. One writer wrote this statement. I love it. No avenger of anyone's past sins can hurt the one who shelters in Christ. I love that. We have freedom in Christ. We have forgiveness. and We have safety and refuge in our Lord because we run to Jesus. He forgives our sins. Our judgment, the judgment against us is gone because he died on the cross for us. So these cities, again, all of them were distributed throughout the land. So they're not all in one place or they're not all in the southern or northern. They're distributed all over. I wanted to show you a map. I wonder if I got the map in on time. There we go. So there's the... Uh, cities of refuge. The Dead Sea is the big lake at the bottom. Up at the top would be uh, uh, Lake Kenezaret or Galilee. Uh, but then on, on one side of the map, you see the three cities. On the other side of the Jordan River, you see the other three cities. Now, the names of the cities are really interesting. Bezer, Ramoth and Gilead, Golan. Some are familiar even today. And then the west of the Jordan, Kadesh, Shechem, and Hebron. Their names are important because each one of those names you could identify right back to the Lord. And it's really interesting. Bezer means salvation. Then you have Kadesh means sanctuary or holy. Shechem means our strength. Hebron means our fellowship. We have fellowship in Christ. Ramoth means our elevation. And Golan means our joy. Each one of those cities are named that, and they're the cities of refuge, and they're strategically located so that any one of the three million Hebrews that will occupy this land will be able to get to one of those cities within one day's journey. Every one of those cities was, uh, a, again, a beautiful type of Christ. They're appointed by God as an act of his grace, they were available to all that would run to them. 
Because we're all under penalty of sin, we can run to Christ. Secondly, these cities of refuge were cities that were, were prominent in that they had this place of refuge there. But none of them could shelter a sinner if they were guilty, this, which is a really interesting thing. There was only one way for safety, and that safety was in the truth-telling. For you and I, the safety is in Christ alone. I love the fact that there's one place for safety. There's, although there are six cities, there's really only one place you could go regionally to get safety. Just as in Christ, he declares that in him there's safety, that there's only one way to God, that in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You had to go to one of those cities of refuge for safety. Thirdly, they're all accessible. No tribe was too far from that place of safety. And the beautiful thing about these refuge, these cities, they were available to everyone, the Hebrew and the non-Hebrew alike. Notice verse 15. Look at verse 15. These six cities shall be for refuge for the children of Israel, for the stranger, and for the sojourner among them. Remember, there were some Egyptians that had come with there were some Egyptians that escaped, and they'd been with the Israelites the whole time. And then there's others that were kind of picked up along the way that followed. So God makes provision for anyone, even a stranger, to be safe in that city, that anyone who kills a person accidentally may flee there. Now, there's some history, too. Early church fathers talk about these cities and how the priests, one of their jobs was not only to minister to the people, but they go on the roads and they clear the roads and they leave signs, not necessarily, you know, Caltrans green signs with reflective tape on them, but, but signs that point to the city of refuge and that every Hebrew would know. Which way is, I, I'm, I'm running for my life, I got somebody on my tail, an avenger is going to kill me because I accidentally killed her sister or whatever. And I'm, I'm running, I'm running from, and, and how, where do I go? And the, the priest's job was to make sure that the way was easy, that there was signs to get to that city of refuge again. What a picture of the Lord, that salvation is always available. There's forgiveness always available in Christ. The road is wide to get to the Lord, to see the way. He makes it available. Not many follow that. But that road is there. That road is available. And beginning in verse 16, we get a way to distinguish between murder and manslaughter. The definition is what I call this here. In other words, the deadly weapon. If you use a deadly weapon, you've got a problem. Notice verse 16. But if he strikes with an iron implement so that he dies, he's a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. And verse 17. If he strikes him with a stone in the hand, so he's got a stone in his hand. He's talking about premeditated. You, you have to pick it up. You have to use it, but with your own hand. You're to be put to death. Or if he does die, he's a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. Verse 18, or if he strikes him with a wooden hand weapon by which one could die, 
and he does die, he's a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. So premeditated murder using a, a weapon. You don't just take a gun, load it, aim it, shoot someone and say, I, I accidentally killed somebody. That's kind of the idea here. You pick up the rock, you hold it in your hand, you lie in wait, and then you attack. Premeditated murder, that's what's being described here. Verse 19, the avenger of blood himself shall put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. So the avenger, not the council at the city, not the people of the city of refuge, not a certain gallows, you know, a public display, but the avenger, the one that had the accusation, the one that was avenging his, his uh, family's murder was to put that person to death. And then in verse 20, we get the motive for murder. If he pushes him out of hatred or while lying in wait, hurls something at him so that he dies, or in enmity, he strikes him with his hands so that he dies, the one who struck him shall surely be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. Again, if a person died by your hand, and it can be proved that, you know, weeks before, you were telling everybody, I hate that person, I hate him, I can't stand that person. And that witness came, that would be a witness that came forward, and that would be used against you, obviously, as a motive for murder. And then we have the definition for manslaughter here in verse 22. However, if he pushes him suddenly without enmity, or throws anything at him without lying in wait, or uses a stone by which a man could die, throwing it at him without seeing him. You know, you're out there skipping stones on the river, throwing rocks over the edge. Have you ever done that? At a, you go to the Grand Canyon, you look over the edge, and you, you always look for a rock, and you throw a rock over the edge. Well, there might be somebody hiking down there. That would be the example. They didn't mean to do it. They threw a rock, and it hit somebody, and it killed them. So they were booked to the city of refuge. They had to run or the adventure would, would come and take their life. Then the congregation shall judge, verse 24, between the manslayer and the avenger of blood. So you have the avenger of blood that makes the accusation. You have the, the person that's seeking refuge there and the judgment. The congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall return him to the city of refuge where he had fled. If he did it accidentally, this, this is the procedure here. And he will remain there, notice, until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. So the high priest that was, was in charge, the high priest at the time of, of the infraction, you know, I guess it would be good if he was an old man when you had a problem because then you might only have to be in the city of refuge for 10 years. But if he was a young high priest, you probably were there for life. You'd have a lifetime sentence. You were stuck in that city of refuge. And then it says, but, verse 26, if the manslayer at any time goes outside the limits of the city of refuge where he had run and fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the limits of his city of refuge, the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, the avenger shall not be guilty of blood because he should have remained in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. 
kind of an interesting thought here, but I think we've all been in a position where we prejudge someone, the way they look, the way they act. I mean, it's not hard these days, you know, when you grew up in, in a certain generation and everybody was kind of a cookie-cutter person. And, and then you come into a society or you go to court in San Bernardino, and I, I've done this. I've sat there in court, and, and you'll have the defendant, you'll have the bar, the, the judges, the lawyers are in front, and you're back there, and they're going to do jury selection. And they tell you what happens. Well, this is a criminal case. It involves murder. I mean, when I heard that, my first one, I don't know about you, but I looked right over there at the defendant. Have you ever done that? And you start to judge that person based on what they look like on the outside, and you haven't heard a th- word. That's why these laws are so important. You need to hear the whole story, and God has a process. He's just. You could run to the city of refuge, save your life, and then be heard. And if you had a story that could be heard and, and corroborated, if, if they couldn't corroborate, the avenger couldn't corroborate their story, then you could live your life there in that city of refuge. Notice in verse 29, witnesses and justice here. And these things shall be a statute of judgment to you throughout your generations in all your cities, your dwellings. Whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses. But one witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty. You always had to have at least two or more witnesses. One witness wasn't enough to condemn condemn a murderer to death. You remember the story in John chapter 8 when the Pharisees brought a woman to Jesus and they said this, the one guy says, Jesus, I caught her in the very act of adultery. Well, number one, if you caught her in the very act, there must have been a, a, a man there, right? Why didn't he bring the man? That's the question. Because he's an unjust Pharisee is why. But he brings the woman right before Jesus. And as he brings her to Jesus, he, he accuses the woman of adultery. And Jesus says this. He says, he who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone, which represents the death penalty, right? That's God's way. If you accuse someone, if you're the, the accuser, then you are the first one to throw the stone. So Jesus says to this guy, And all the Pharisees that were saying, yeah, yeah, he was caught in adultery. What do you say, Jesus? Trying to catch Jesus. He says, well, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And you know the story. What did they do? They started dropping stones. From the eldest to the youngest, they all walked out of the space there. And Jesus was with her. It's one of my favorite stories. He, the Bible says that was the first time he looked at her and her shame. He lifted his eyes up and looked at her in the eyes and says, Woman, where are your accusers? She says, There aren't any, Lord. And he says, Go and sin no more. I love that about the Lord. But what a, another picture here. A picture of if you're going to condemn someone, you better have another witness. You have to have more than one witness to condemn Someone And then in verse 31, notice God declares that murderer's life will not be ransomed. In other words, if you're a convicted murderer, you can't pay your way out of this. That's, that's the point here. Moreover, you shall take no ransom 
for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. So you couldn't pay restitution to replace their life. If you were rich and you, you just killed one of your slaves and it was like, whatever, I can pay my way out of this. And God says, no. So it's a principle you can't do. Why? Because back in Genesis chapter 9, remember that's where we started tonight. Genesis 9 verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he was made. So God's laying down the principle money cannot replace justice. There's only one way to, to consummate justice in society, and you had to have more than one witness. Verse 32, and you shall take no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the priest. So even the guy that was not guilty of, man's, of uh, murder, he accidentally killed someone. He couldn't even pay the priest off or pay the city off and leave. He had to stay there until the death of the priest. So you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land. Death, the murder, blood defiles the land. And no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it except by the blood of him who shed it. Therefore, do not defile the land which you inhabit in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. I don't know how many times I've read that and how many times I've thought about this country and the millions upon millions of abortions legally that have taken place in this country. The most dangerous place for a baby in America is in the womb. And now we see the Democratic Party and every presidential candidate on that side of the political system, every Democrat is, wants more money for abortion and they want abortion up till the time of, of birth and after. We've already heard of it. After. They want it after. They want you and the medical professionals to decide this baby deserves to die. But let me tell you this, Genesis 9 doesn't go away because of a political party. They're going to pay for this. But will we pay for this as Americans? Will we, as a society, without voting, without letting our voices be heard, without standing up against this atrocity, will we be guilty and convicted? You've heard it said, if God doesn't judge America... He'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Blood, the blood of these innocent children. I know that's heavy. I don't apologize for the truth. This Sunday, I'm going to present to this church body a, a local opportunity. I think it's called 40 days for the unborn, correct me if I'm wrong, 30 or 40 days for the unborn. We're, we're going to join this. It's a local movement. It's a time for fasting and praying so that we as a church and other churches and Christians in this area from you know, this whole area can band together and pray and stand and fight against this atrocity that's happening right here in our own backyard. So this Sunday, you're going to hear more about it, and uh, 
this Saturday, if you're interested, just from word of mouth, um, there's a, a, a beginning, uh, what, what are they calling it? It's not a rally. It's at the Nazarene Church in Redlands where they have a speaker and uh, just kind of laying out the, the next 40 days. But as a church, we're going to join that. And I want to present it before I leave on my trip. So this Sunday, I'm going to talk to you about that and how important it is for us to stand against this atrocity done to the unborn. And uh, in light of tonight's Bible study, too, when you consider this, we need to stand for these children. We need to pray against these laws, and we need to to stand with our president. I'm so grateful that we have a president that stands against abortion. One of the, one of the most anti-abortion presidents we have had in years. Unbelievable. President Trump, no matter what you think of him, he has done more to stop abortion in, in America. And, and, I mean, that's why the, the parties are so crazy right now and in the world. Because the last president, Obama, he supported abortions in other countries using your money. Unbelievable. And all that's been stopped. So we need to stand as a, a people against murder because God's against murder. Amen? Father, thank you for the word tonight. Even my heavy appeal here at the end, I, I make no apologies, Lord, for the truth Help us as your people to stand for truth and righteousness and justice. Help us, Lord, to, to stand with other Christians in our area in this fast and prayer and uh, uh, against the abortion mill that we have right down here off Hospitality Lane, Planned Parenthood. Help us, Lord, as a church to really pray and seek your face. And Lord, thank you for taking these Old Testament truths and the way you set up justice for the accidental manslaughter, the manslayer, for, for true justice, for, the, for him to be heard and not just his life to be taken. Thank you for justice, O oh Lord. Thank you for our judicial system with all its flaws. Thank you. We pray, Lord, that as your people, that we would join you in truth and righteousness and just causes. And I pray, Lord, that you would rally people from our church and other churches to, to stand against this atrocity. Plagues our nation and plagues my heart. Lord, break our hearts for those things that break yours. And we give you thanks and praise tonight. In Jesus, amen.